Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Priya Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hello, podcast listeners. Rhea with you here again today with my friend Stacy Rice, president of Idlewild Consulting. We are going to talk about all things data and Salesforce related. I know this is a hot topic for a lot of you, and I'm excited to get to sit with Stacy, who is one of the best in the biz. Hi, Stacy. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm just going to jump right into it. Tell me a little bit about yourself and why you started this company. I got into Actually, I started at a nonprofit, a national nonprofit, over 10 years ago, and they happened to be rolling out Salesforce literally the week I started, uh, which worked out well for me. And since I was one of the only people that on the team that had any database experience whatsoever, um, it kind of got thrown in my lap. And so I got really familiar with, with nonprofits and how they were rolling Salesforce out at a large national scale and really fell in love with Salesforce and the platform. And and learned a lot in the three years that I was there, and then decided to kind of go out on my own and do it for other nonprofits and just spread the information and the, the knowledge that I had learned in those three years. So that's how I started. For the total newbie, what is Salesforce <laughs> and why does it seem like all these nonprofits are using it? Funny, when I started 10 years ago, nobody knew Salesforce, and I would tell people, oh, I do Salesforce, and, and for profit people and non for profit people had never heard of it. And now it is, um, you know, it's very well known. It's the leading CRM in the world. So what is Salesforce? Salesforce is technically it's a CRM. Um, and what is that? It's a client relationship management system. In the nonprofit world, I would translate that to constituent relationship management. But it goes way beyond that. Um, it's really, it goes beyond just managing your constituents. It's really a platform or what we'd call an advanced database. Um, it kind of does everything, really. You can build out Salesforce to manage your fundraising, your program data your volunteers. Um, it's a really customizable, flexible database um, that nonprofits really leverage to bring all of their business processes into one place. Why it seems like Salesforce has exploded amongst nonprofits in particular? I would say it starts with the fact that Salesforce gives out 10 free licenses to nonprofits to get you started. So for a small nonprofit, that means you are paying zero costs in what we'd call software fees or licensing fees to get started. So your development or fundraising team can get up and running with an implementation cost, but no ongoing fees for licensing. Um, Salesforce is really, really big on what they call the one-to-one one model, which is you know donating um, one percent of their their tools or their platform uh, that's licenses, one percent of their staff time for volunteering, and so because of that, uh, nonprofits can really leverage that tool. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that every nonprofit I work with is very unique. They have totally custom business processes. They do not all deliver the same services to the same people. And because of that, they need a tool that is really flexible and can be built out for them. And so they're not buying a one size fits all. With Salesforce, it really is like canvas. Um, And if you use the right implementation partner who understands your business processes, you can really transform it to track whatever you want to track. I think a lot of systems you buy, you kind of turn it on and what you what you buy is what you get or what you see is what you get. And Salesforce, that's not the case at all. And so I think nonprofits really, really like that ability to really make it their own. And I know you're a Salesforce specialist, but are there other solutions out there that, uh, that nonprofits can look at? Because I think sometimes um, while Salesforce is wonderful in terms of flexibility, I think that can also be a hindrance to folks 
realizing that they need to uh, invest some time and money in customization. So. Are you aware of any other platforms that folks have been using? Not in the scale, obviously, of Salesforce. I mean, Salesforce, in terms of moving all of your processes onto a single platform, there really aren't too many other tools that can do sort of donor management and program management and volunteer management and partnership management in one place. Um, there are tools that you can buy that do donor management really, really well, and especially if you don't have a, a, a very like super sophisticated development team and you want to just say here's you know here's a tool you can use and, and the tool will sort of guide you. Those tools exist. So um, just kind of thinking of some that are familiar to people probably like Donor Perfect and Salsa, um, Razor's Edge obviously is the big one that everyone's familiar with, and they do donor management really well. Um, you're obviously going to pay for those. You're not going to get those 10 free licenses to get started. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to bring on program management, um, depending on what your program is, obviously, so if you're a human service organization, you might provide you know, sort of case management. There are tools that just do that. Um, but again, you're going to have fees associated with those. <clears throat> and they're, not gonna, they're very little customization typically. It's kind of, again, you're buying a case management tool, and here's what it does, and here's what you get. Um, but there's so much overlap I have found with nonprofits, and this is the beauty of Salesforce, right? Your donors can be your um, your other types of constituents. Your donors can be your board members. They can be your volunteers. They can be your um, like uh, clients or service recipients. And what Salesforce provides that these other sort of disparate systems don't provide is the ability to see what Salesforce calls this 360-degree view of your of your constituents. Um, and so seeing, being able to look at one single contact in one single database um, and see all the relationships, every way that that person is engaged with your organization is pretty unique to Salesforce, I have found. Um, and that's, I think that's why it's sort of, again, above and beyond the rest of these tools that exist that are disparate and not connected and don't talk to each other. I'm hearing 360 view and breaking down silos between departments, yes, which I know is a huge. big issue in many nonprofits and businesses, I would expect. Okay, so if I said, great, Stacey, fantastic, I'm on board, let's yeah. do this Salesforce thing. Can you walk me through what happens from soup to nuts between, great, I think we want to go with this, to all the way to, okay, now we're using it and our life is much better. Yeah, absolutely. Quite a few steps in between that. So the first thing is deciding which team or department should come on first. We would not say, we would not recommend to any nonprofit to try to do everything in what we call phase one. So we would say an obvious team to bring on first and foremost is, is development because Salesforce does that really well. Uh, the name Salesforce, a horrible name to be honest, mm -hmm. um, implies sales. And so there's a lot of business processes that are sort of built in for, for the development team. And so it's a, typically a very smooth transition. So we would say bring on the development team. But think about what other teams and which order you would want to bring them on or which business processes are critical. So deciding that in advance. Um, and working with it, I would say always work with an implementation partner um, and, and plan that sort of roadmap of what you want to implement and when. And so typically what that starts with, a, a, a basic implementation would have these areas. Um, it starts with discovery, which is sitting with your consultants and doing a deep dive with your users, your end users really talking about their business processes everything from what they do day to day, the forms that they fill out, the people that they talk to, the tools that they're using, the, the trackers. I know we, all of our nonprofits use trackers of like Excel or Google Sheets. And so being able to kind of know everything you guys are doing and why you're doing it. So understanding the metrics, 
that you want to report on and the, the data that you're capturing and the outcomes that you're trying to measure are really part of that discovery process. Can I ask a, yeah. a follow-up question there? I know that discovery can be really in-depth. Um, in that discovery process, do you also help clients think about which metrics they should be collecting or which ones they don't necessarily need to be collecting? Because I know it's a common trend that I see, which is like, we collect a million different data points, but we don't necessarily know which ones are the most effective. Some of our clients come to us and they, are, they really have thought through this process of what do we want to measure? How do we know our um, program is successful? And they have those really clearly defined. Other clients will come to us and we'll ask them the questions of how, what types of services do you provide and can you give me a number? How many services are you providing and to, into who are your clients? What are the demographics? And um, you know, how do you're successful? And they have no answers to those questions. And it's, they know they need them um, and that's why they hire us, but they don't know yet. And typically as we go through this discovery process, we will help guide them through that um, not only understanding kind of what outcomes are important, but what information is critical to collect. A good example would be actually a client we're working with now. They capture a lot of information about their um, about their students, right? A lot of the information they're capturing to help them with their day-to-day -day work, but really not to report on outcomes because it's not directly related to what they're trying to do, which is high school graduation. Um, and you might say to them, well, if, if that's not it's measurable or um, it's not of your whether this student is going to graduate do we need to collect it and then we have this conversation with the users to say does this help you do your job better does this help us prove our mission and improve our mission which again are really should be thought you know through as we're going through this process and so yes we do help them we are not going to make those decisions for them though however and those really that's the kind of the, the mission, right? It's the core of your business of knowing how do we know we're successful. And mm -hmm. so because we've worked with hundreds of nonprofits, we've seen it before and we can mm -hmm. give you best practices, but those decisions really have to be made internally. Mm -hmm. um, last follow-up question about data, because I think this is such a, a meaty topic. What we know is that there are certainly some nonprofits that are quite dynamic in their program delivery. Mm -hmm. like. You know, well, we tried it this way this year, but we're going to try it differently next year. How would you handle that from a database perspective? Um, part of going back to Salesforce's flexibility. So sometimes we say we don't have a crystal ball, right? Now we're sitting here and we're saying, here's what you want to measure. That might change next week or next year. Your program changes. Again, we talked about using data to not only prove your mission, but improve your mission. Your business processes and your mission and your services and are going to evolve over time and Salesforce can accommodate that evolution. What we would say is if you think something is going to change or you're trying it out, um, let's do what's called a baseline or minimalist approach to the implementation, providing a place for data to be captured, but not building out any customizations that are you know, have a lot of bells and whistles where you're spending a lot of time and money investing in a custom solution that then might be completely scrapped in a year from now. So what we can do is sort of a hybrid approach of, okay, let's start collecting the data again in a sort of a less expensive way, use that to analyze in the upcoming months. And then if we need to pivot or reassess how we're doing that data collection, that's what's beautiful about Salesforce. It doesn't cost a ton of money to then switch mm -hmm. um, as long as we know that that is a potential. If you're upfront and say like, this is how we're doing it now, but it could change in the years to come or we're thinking about changing this process. I think that's fine. Say we're at a point, we've cleaned up our data, we know what we're collecting. What do we do then? For the discovery process, um, you're, and, and that's a, a pretty time intensive process for the end users. So, 
Um, we, like I said, we sit with them for hours and hours and we review their documentation, we talk to them, it's called like, day in the life of, and then we kind of go away for a while. So at that point, your users can kind of go back to their lives. Um, and for a few weeks after that, we, we start actually doing design. So the, your consultants will start to put together a data model, which is critical. It's essentially how your database is set up. It's the architecture of the database. Um, start to put together business process flows and just documentation. Um, and then they'll come back to you, present that to you, sometimes in the form of what's called a prototype review. So some, some implementations actually can go right to development, which is starting to build out in the system. So the next phase then would be for, um, for your developers to sit with you and show you what they've built or show you what they've designed and get feedback. And Salesforce is very, very iterative. So, and not every consultant works this way. We're a very, very pro-iterative approach. So what we'll do is we'll design or we'll build, we'll show, show the client, get their feedback, go back, make changes. So that process we call a prototype review is really working with the client to fine tune and tweak it. Once that process is done, um, what we try to do is go live as soon as possible. So what that means is we, we might have users up and running on the system before we say the system is final because it's hard to ask users to test in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. To go into a blank system that doesn't have their data when they're busy doing other things and say, hey, test this, it's really, we have found, not realistic. So we've changed our approach over the years where we say, Let's get the framework in place. Let's build out the foundation, that architecture that I mentioned. Have users start using it and then provide feedback in real time as they're using the system. And then what we do is rapid response or what we call kind of burn in support. As users are using it, they're providing us feedback and we're making changes and tweaking it and pushing out quick releases over the weeks after deployment. In that, parallel to all of that, we do data migration. Mm -hmm. So this is a big piece in terms of cost also to the project, but also time in the end users. So our clients have to clean their own data for, I don't want to say entirely clean their own data, but pull together all their data sources. So some of our clients are coming from legacy databases like a Razor's Edge um, or a DonorPerfect or a Apricot and others are coming from spreadsheets. And so it's compiling, pulling all that data together mapping it to Salesforce and understanding the migration rules and working with the client to say, hey, we think this data is gonna be mapped here. Does this make sense? And working with them there. And then importing it into Salesforce and having the client review it. So that's actually pretty time intensive. It's one of the, typically what tends to be one of the bigger costs or line items on a proposal mm -hmm. is, is the data import, but it's critical. Um, and we want to have that data imported as much of the data as we can before users start using the system so that when they log in, they see their clients, they see their constituents, they see you know, the services and the volunteer hours and all of that that they've been collecting over the years. Mm -hmm. um, so we built this database. It's populated with data. Mm -hmm. Users start using it and testing it. There's some maybe some tweaking. What happens when you go away and your job is done? Like, can you give us some ideas about best practices around training? Because I know mm. database is only as good as the amount of time you actually use it to do your job. Absolutely. And then especially with such high turnover rates in the nonprofit sector, yep. I'm wondering if you could talk about ongoing training and, and um, onboarding for new staff members. Yes, that's a really important question. So training in general is really important. Um, I, would, I would even take a step back though and say buy-in from the executive team is critical for mm -hmm. success. And so if you don't have that, after the implementation, things will just fizzle out and sort of die. We've seen that happen many times. So if the executive team is not sort of enforcing the 
Um, you know, the fact that Salesforce is the system of record, meaning the reports are coming out of Salesforce. If it's not in Salesforce, it doesn't exist. That's often a mantra we sort of try to instill in our clients. If this is data that you are reporting out of Salesforce, it needs to be entered um, and diligently, and there needs to be some data sort of review processes in place internally to make sure not only that it's being entered, that it's being entered on time, that it's being entered correctly, mm. that there aren't duplicates. And so we would help someone internally be that point person. So not every organization, depending on size, needs an internal system administrator. Some do, again, depending on size, and some don't. Can you um, give me a sense of what what's that tipping point size? It's going to vary. Again, it's based on how much you're using the system and for what. Mm -hmm. um, so we would say at 50 users, we would mm -hmm. have a full-time system admin. Got it. Anything less than that, you would have someone whose job maybe is 50% of their time as system admin. Um, but again, depending on the size of your organization. So if you have your fundraising team on there and your program team and your partnership team and your volunteer team, um, and that, that would make a, a fairly large organization that would have all those teams on Salesforce um, at once. The model that we would recommend would be something called the power user model, which what that means is that each team, you have someone who's designated as the power user. Mm -hmm. That person is responsible for creating sort of sophisticated reports, onboarding their own team members. So mm -hmm. as people, what you mentioned, how do you onboard? You have someone who sits on that team who understands their unique business processes and how they do the day-to-day -day so that mm -hmm. when someone comes on board, they say, this is how we do it in Salesforce and let me train you. Um, and then that user group, that power user group, um, made up of, let's say, three or four people, um, they can be quarterly or even monthly or bi-monthly, and they report up to a system admin who then thinks about what those requirements are because those users are going to have change requests. And when you have a bunch of change requests coming in from different departments, you need someone overseeing those change requests um, so that you're building a cohesive system. You're not just sort of creating little band-aid solutions or one team runs off and creates, you know, we always say they go rogue. Sometimes that happens because Salesforce is so flexible and easy to manipulate. It's very easy for different users to say, oh, I need a field here. I'm just going to go ahead and create it without right. thinking what are the implications org-wide. And so you do need someone overseeing that org-wide change, but the requirements should be driven from the team itself mm, because they sense. know their business processes. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, again, the structure of how you, you do it is going to be different. Um, our clients, going back to what do you do after we pull things out, to be totally honest, our clients kind of never go away. I would just say we never go away, which I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but, but what that means is, and I mentioned this earlier and again and again, is that Salesforce is very iterative and it's an evolution. It's never done. You never right. just built it and, and you're finished. So you should keep that in mind. It's, it's a constant investment. And so our clients, um, because we know their processes so intimately from mm -hmm. going through discovery and working with their users, um, we and you know the way we work now is that whoever you work with on the implementation is with you through service. So if you have a, um, a complex report that you need to build or you want to do another training um, on reports or anything, you're onboarding a bunch of new staff and you want to do training, um, we, we get brought on for that as well because we know their system inside and out, we know their users inside and out, and we know their business processes inside and out. So that would be like transitioning from a project to a service plan. Just want to a little bit here and talk about data. Yeah. Um, so many nonprofits know that they need a data strategy, mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily know what that means or how to do it. Can you walk me through any best practices around a data strategy? Part of building out an implementation of Salesforce, for us as the consultants, it's we, we would like to know as much as humanly possible at the beginning of an implementation what reports you guys need to run, what metrics, what outcomes are you looking for, um, because that will inform the data model. 
Um, so if there's certain reports you need and you know you need them, um, and they're maybe reports that you generate for the board or reports you generate for funders, that's helpful to know in advance. Um, it's also helpful to know how often you're reporting on those and, and how unique. So sometimes we have clients who have really, really obscure, unique requests that come from specific funders. Mm. And the question often is, do we need to build that into the system? And that's a conversation, but typically the answer is really, are you using this for anything else except this one funder? And the answer might be no, in which case we would say no. Don't try to accommodate that, that sort of edge case because that, that's where things can get sort of fairly expensive or that funder goes away. Now you've built a, a system around that particular funder. So that's something to think about. Um, thinking about how the data is coming into the system is huge. So this is a lot of our clients are using different systems to collect information. So that would be, let's say online forms is a really big one. We have applications and our students or our constituents fill out applications, understanding kind of where all the data are coming from, um, how to get that into Salesforce in, a, in an efficient way so that people aren't manually entering this. Um, are you getting data from, um, you know, tools such as like government agency sites, right? Sometimes government, you know, state or city um, or municipal mandated systems. And so does your data have to live there and in Salesforce? So these are all just questions you have to think about as you're thinking about your data in general. Um, and then there's the really important piece of, you know, not only how is it getting in there, but how are we monitoring it so that it's getting in there and it's not messy, it's not polluting our existing data. Um, that it's, um, like I mentioned, I think cleaning up data is a really costly, costly thing. So duplicates are a huge problem. So part of it is catching the data issues in advance of them becoming a problem and then having to pay someone like us to come in to clean up your mess. Um, and so we call that sort of part of the job of the system administrator to monitor where these issues are coming from. So that's usually on a, you know, a monthly basis running certain reports to audit the data mm. and saying like, is it a user issue? Is it a training issue? Is it a third party tool integration issue where like data is coming in and it's creating duplicates? Mm -hmm. And then we say, identify what those issues are and we kind of say, stop the bleeding, figure out how to figure out how to you know, stop, you know, train the users, stop the data from coming in wrong. Um, or, or put in a process that you, at the end, after the fact, you're cleaning it up. So there's a lot of pieces that come in there. It's kind of a conversation that we can talk about forever. Charlie, if you could give me um, like an example of an organization that has seen great progress because they've implemented Salesforce. Um, actually, um, we're, we're kind of wrapping up an implementation right now with a, a client that... Um, that works with students and they again kind of help with with high school and college graduation of their students and they have a, a, a very large I think they're up to like 800 active students at a given time which is a lot considering the amount of um, I don't hand holding is not the right word the amount of so it's sort of a high touch into yeah process I mean they're they're it's a it, they work very closely and intimately with these students and it's a lot of time that they spend with each student um, and they were tracking their data in Excel documents. And they all had completely different templates that they used. And it was when I asked them what they report on, and they actually know what they report on, which was great. They do it manually, and they report to their supervisor manually. And it takes them hours and hours and hours every month to kind of pull this data together. Um, and they actually have two programs. They have a high school program and a college program that don't talk to each other, even though these are the same students. So a big, big piece of this was moving the two teams onto the same system. 
Um, and then providing a place that those uh, program managers can actually track all of their student data and literally click a button and see on their homepage a dashboard of those key metrics, um, especially the ones they need to take action on. So a big, big piece of this is knowing when a student is off track or you know, not on track to graduate and what those issues are. And before, they would not have any alerts or flags or any indicators that would say, hey, this student needs attention. Mm. And it, it's, it made it very easy for those students to slip through the cracks. They were lucky in that their program officers are extremely um, committed and would spend hours and hours and hours of their time making sure that didn't happen. But that was time that could have been spent elsewhere. And so by building a system that had that automation, that had those sort of built-in alerts, um, and reports and dashboards right there on their homepage, it, it I means it's saving them so much time and giving them transparency across the organization of how are we really doing. Yeah. I would say that's a huge benefit. So let's just talk nitty gritty. I know it's sort of, uh, the answer is obviously it depends. Yeah, it always Everything but, depends. But can you give us some general guidelines with respect to how much time and money it would take to implement a Salesforce database from, say, soup to nuts, like yeah. if you have absolutely nothing? Okay, so again, it, it obviously varies wildly. Okay. I'll give you, I think what would be helpful to understand why it varies wildly, um, because there are certain factors that can increase or decrease costs. Um, so a big one, which I won't get too much into, is just kind of what, where your historical data lives. That's mm -hmm. a huge one. So we say when we're doing scoping, we say data migration is very much a black box until we see the data. It's hard for us to say how much data is gonna cost. So for example, we could be doing a very simple fundraising implementation for one client and building out the same system, I should say for two clients, building out the exact same system. Um, but one is coming from a legacy database like a Razor's Edge, and one's coming from spreadsheets and Word docs and all these other, and didn't have a historical database. So their costs could literally be double, right, for that person who's not coming off of the database. So the data migration is really unique for every project, so it's impossible for us to say until we see the data. So putting aside data migration for a second and saying let's not talk about data migration, let's just talk about implementation. Um, I would say, again, fundraising is a pretty standard one. Um, typically, it's going to start around 10000 and that's just for a fundraising team. Mm -hmm. um, it can be less if you want to do more of a quick start, so no bells and whistles. I'll talk in a second what bells and whistles means, but again, getting um, a, a full-fledged fundraising system up, getting you know your users trained, your reports built out, the system customized is going to start around 10. Program management is very unique again, um, but there's a couple of factors in, in what, again, could increase and decrease costs. One of them is just how involved your team is, and I know that sounds crazy, so it's the, we actually want your users to be involved in the process as much as possible. It makes for a better end product. But often we're creating the same end product for two clients again and have different costs at the end of the day because the, the users are so involved. It takes more time. We have more check-ins. There's just more testing. There's more feedback. Um, and that will increase costs. So it's an interesting thing. So sometimes when we're trying to scope a project, it's very much what they want to do, but it's often who is the client mm -hmm. um, and, and how engaged they're going to be. The more engaged, the better you're going to be at the end, but mm -hmm. it is going to cost you more. Mm -hmm. As opposed to a client who comes to us and says, um, we want to do an after-school program, just build it and show it to us, and we'll just, you know, that's what we want then. They don't have a lot of feedback or a lot of input. They just want us to build it and show them how to use it. Right. Um, so there's there's some vari variation there that can increase costs or decrease costs. Another big one is just how automated you need things or how mm. custom you want an interface. So a great example that I think people often understand when I try to explain this is 
attendance tracking. Mm. So people kind of like, we want to track the attendance of our students in our after-school program. And so everyone knows what attendance means. They come every day, you take attendance, they're either attended, tardy, absent, whatever. It's very straightforward. You can build that database structure, meaning you can create a module that allows you to take attendance for every student very inexpensively because it's just creating some tables and some fields. That, an inexpensive way to do it would be to, just to create the database um, model and then users, the downside to doing it that way is that users would have to click a bunch of times. So for 50 students in their class, they have to click new attendance, choose the drop down, click save, click new attendance. And it's a very tedious process. Imagine doing that for 50 kids every day, you know, maybe a couple of times a day. A more advanced, more expensive option would be to take that same data model but improve the user interface, the user experience. So for example, we have a, a classroom of 50 kids. When that teacher is ready to enter their attendance, they click a button that says take attendance. It immediately brings up a screen of all 50 kids that have the status of attended and they just go to the few that didn't attend and click. There's a difference of data entry, significantly changes the experience of the user. At the end of the day, you're doing the exact same thing. You're collecting data in terms of attendance. You know who attended and who didn't. Mm -hmm. But the cheap option makes it a lot harder for users to enter the data and they're more expensive options. So that's where costs can increase, even though at the end of the day, you have the exact same output. It's like the level of sophistication that you're yes. looking for and back-end coding. Exactly. So, so custom. it's all about customization. How custom do you want the experience to be for the user? Right. How the, easy do you want it to be for them to enter the data? Bespoke is always more expensive. See shoes for details. Yes. So can you give us a general <sighs> ballpark? I, I mean, I really can't. It really varies. It really, really varies. I would say if you're looking at program management, again, depending on your program, I would say you're starting at probably between 20 and 30, and that would be like a simple program. If you have, we work a lot with, let's say, large like settlement houses that have a lot of different programs or a lot of sort of complex needs around different types of services, and they have different types of intake, and they have forms that their clients are filling out. Now you're looking at 60 to 100, so it can really vary wildly yeah. depending on what the nonprofit does, yeah. like how many students they're serving or how many you know clients they're serving. Uh, how big their staff is, what type of you know, <laughs> like data they want to collect, reporting metrics. Yeah, it's really all over the place. With respect to staff time, mm -hmm. which I know you touched on, and again, mm -hmm. the answers it depends yeah. on how much your staff wants to be involved. But can you give us sort of like a starting time expectation? So if I'm an AD and I'm thinking about okay, I have. X number of staff members and Y amount of work to do, but I need to make sure to carve out some time. What would, yeah. what would be the minimum amount that you would recommend? So, okay, so what we really, really want when we work with an organization is to have an internal project manager mm. who, who is moving the project forward, even if it's across multiple teams. Got it. So that can help us make, you know, schedule these calls or these meetings, which are usually scheduling is is very difficult because people, like you just said, are very busy. So scheduling things, moving things forward, making sure that the, the information that we ask for, those forms that they're filling out, their data checkers, get to us in a timely way. And so mm -hmm. having an internal project manager. So that role is going to be more, obviously, time intensive for that user or that, mm -hmm. that person because they're attending. We usually request that they attend every single call and meeting mm -hmm. so that they can see the oversight. Even if they don't sit on that team, because they're the project manager, they need to sit in every call, every meeting. Potentially have weekly check-ins, um, again, depending on the size of the project. So that could be a 30-minute quick check-in each week. It could be an hour check-in each week. Um, and then their time to schedule and, like I said, pull together documentation, you know, kind of stay on people. 
that person we would say plan on five hours a week and that will go up or down. So some weeks, like I mentioned, we might kind of go away for two or three weeks while we do design and you don't hear from us, in which case they have nothing to do. But then it's gonna pick up and we say, okay, now we're ready to test, we're ready to schedule prototype reviews, we need yep. the data, and all of a sudden their week could be like, we need 10 or 20 hours of their week. Sure. Um, and then the users themselves, the big piece that requires time from the actual users, people providing their requirements, is that discovery. So sitting in meetings with us, sometimes you know two, four, six hours at the beginning, that's usually only over a couple of weeks. So it's like the first couple of weeks are intense. And then you're not going to hear from us pretty much for a few weeks when we do design. And then we're going to come back to you. And then it's going to be kind of, again, go up where we're going to need you know 10 hours, maybe one week for you to really go in and test, for us to do prototype reviews, for you to provide feedback. And then the data, reviewing the data. So I would say averaging... If you wanted to average it out across the project, it's really only a few hours a week per user, and that would be maybe even high. Mm-hmm. But because it really ebbs and flows... Right. It's intense at some point. Exactly. Right. Sometimes it's intense, which is why we're actually very fe- flexible with scheduling. So mm-hmm. if you have a... We always hear we have board meetings coming up, or we have an end-of-year appeal, or there's some or an event, a gala. That's what we can work around that. So if, it's, if you say to us, well, we can't do anything for the next month because we are swamped with other things... Great. We'll do our stuff when you're ready to you know, circle back. Yep. You know, as long as there's not some deadline that we have to meet for implementation and yep. launch, it's fine. Okay. Last question for you. Most nonprofit executive directors and most nonprofits don't have in-house tech teams. Mm-hmm. Um, they may or may not be tech savvy. So, can you give us some ideas about how do you tell a good developer from a from a not great developer? Because from experience. I had no reason to talk to Salesforce developers mm-hmm. until I did an implementation, and so I relied largely on word of mouth and mm-hmm. who my friends use. But you know, when the proposals came in, I had no real idea about yeah who's good, who's bad. I you know I did reference checks, but again, that yes. can be of limited help. So what, what what are the hallmarks of a good developer? Yeah, I mean, I would say first and foremost, experience with your sector. So if you are a nonprofit um, and you were looking for an implementation partner, you only want to work with someone who's done nonprofits. And this doesn't mean they only do nonprofits, but that has to be their primary um, focus. And that's because the way for-profits use Salesforce and the way non-for-profits use Salesforce is very, very different. Um, I would say that's a, a big one. I think when you're talking to them, the questions that they ask will indicate whether they've they know anything about what you do, mm-hmm. and it's, are they asking the right questions, insightful questions, are they asking questions um, that kind of make you think, oh, we haven't thought about that before, you know, um, it should become clear that they understand what you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, and so it's actually, you know, I was just doing a, a prototype review the other day, and I would say our, our team is, first and foremost, what we call business analysts, like understanding the business process of our clients, I think is more important than the technology every day. Um, but I was giving the presentation and, and, I, and they actually commented, they thought it was quite funny that it seemed like I sat on their team. They were like, you, you're talking like a program manager. Mm-hmm. So having, using the language of your organization and quickly being able to go into that role is really mm-hmm. important. And you can sort of, you should be able to assess that fairly simply by having a few conversations with them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you know, having them demo something that they've built before or something similar, it's never good. So I often have potential clients or prospects come to me and they say, can you give us a demo of, you know, of what we need? I'm like, mm-hmm. no, because every client has their own needs, but right. I can show you something, maybe a similar organization or mm-hmm. a complex process that we've built out to kind of show you how we've developed things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think having 
as many projects under their belt as a big one and being able to show you an end product mm -hmm. and absolutely reference checks. Um, I, I think that's huge. Who are they working with now? Projects they've completed um, that are comparable to your project and your scope is really a big one. Um, I personally don't care about certifications. I know that comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't, I've actually met people who've gotten certified who've never worked on Salesforce in their lives, but they studied for the test and took the cert. And I also know people who've been working on Salesforce for, you know, 10 plus years who don't have certs, who are amazing consultants. So I don't, I would not rely on certifications whatsoever to choose a consultant. It does not mean anything, um, personally. Um, it's it's really hard to assess from someone who doesn't you know from never having done a project like this, not mm -hmm. knowing technology, not having maybe ever seen Salesforce in their lives. It is really hard to assess. I would say the the detail of the proposal is also really big. Mm. Um, you know, you might get a proposal that's really general and generic, and I think the more sort of detail they provide about exactly what are they implementing for you is a, a good indicator that they understood your requirements. Mm -hmm. um, and also just their process for moving forward. So how many people are they going to staff on your project is a big one. Um, how much time are they going to spend on project management versus through the other components of the project? Trying to consider that when you're thinking about a project partner. Um, what is the support afterwards? So sometimes you'll get an implementation partner that you're going to have your implementation team. Once, once that project's over, they go away and you never see them again. So if you need help, you're now you know, sort of relying on maybe their support team like their help desk that has never talked to you before, has never logged into your system before. And so thinking about what happens after the implementation and mm -hmm. asking those questions is a really important um, in terms of assessing about who you want to work with. There are a number of companies that offer volunteer pro bono projects for Salesforce implementation. What is your view on that? actually are working with a client right now who's actually using Taproot mm. for some of theirs. They really had a tiny, tiny budget, um, but wanted to make sure that it was being built out correctly, but didn't have the, all of the money to pay us to build it all out. And so in that case, it's a little bit of a hybrid approach where they're actually paying us to do some of the uh, project management, the design, um, the, like I mentioned, kind of prototyping, and they're using um, a, a volunteer to actually do a lot of the build. Mm. And so that was kind of a, a, an interesting approach that in this particular project is working really well and doesn't always, but again, it depends on the volunteer. Right. And so again, it varies. So it depends. It, it really, everything really depends. It yeah. really depends on who you're working with and like not only internally, but also externally. It's a really, yeah. it comes down to the users almost always in every, every scenario. Daisy, this was super helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. We'll link to information about Idlewild in the show notes. Great. And really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Fun. Bye.